0: Hello and welcome to the Dear Prudence podcast. I am Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg, but mostly known as Dear Prudence. Uh, with us this week, we have fellow Sladian uh, Dan Coyce in the studio, and we will get to introducing him uh, shortly. But first, I want to talk a little bit about fat phobia and the externalization of the fear of death. I've gotten two letters in the last week that are nominally about someone else's size and about someone else's relationship, but which I suspect are in fact about our fear of death and of ambiguity and chaos, which lead to death. Um, And I think it's an important distinction because it's really okay to say I'm afraid of death and things that are outside of my control and things that confuse me and things that go against cultural norms that are sort of designed to make me forget about my own imminent death uh, scare and confuse me. That's great. You should say that absolutely. And when you're not aware of it, and you think this is just a normal response, and you 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 respond to your own fear of death by trying to control the people around you, uh, you become an asshole. And and I'm here to to keep us from becoming assholes. I don't want us to all be assholes. Or at the very least, if you're going to be an asshole, I want you to do it on purpose. I want you to do it with the full knowledge of the assholery you are about to embark upon. Um. This was actually pointed out to me by a reader on Twitter. I got a letter from a landlord who had had a tenant die, and they were sad about it, but they mostly felt like the tenant had brought it upon themselves. They died young uh, because, uh, as the landlord learned while scavenging through their recycling bins, there were a lot of pizza boxes, um, which clearly were the, the sole cause of this person's untimely death. And they also felt like because she was a fat person, um, that that, again, was like absolutely why she died. And uh, they wanted to include a clause in future, future tenant agreements that... You'll you'll have a healthy life if you live here, um, which is it was very vague. This understanding of what would a healthy life entail and how far would it go and, and what would they have to promise and and what would they have to allow their landlord to determine what was or wasn't healthy. But it was just this real sense of I need to find out why this death happened because it inconvenienced me and it happened at a time I didn't want it and it affects my money and my money is what keeps me from dying again. Like people don't think these things out loud, but that's what's there. That's what under. And so they felt like, if I can just determine that this person died because she ate pizza and was a fat woman, then I know it won't happen to me, it won't happen to other people around me, and I can control future tenants and make sure that they'll never die. And I just, guys, we're all going to die, and you can be the healthiest person in the world and be hit by a car extremely healthily, um, and it will kill you dead, and uh that's something that we all have to deal with and address. And if you are at a point where you are so anxious and freaked out by the idea of dying when you're not prepared and and when you're not ready, that you think you can somehow uh, write into a contract the promise, essentially, uh, that no one will die by surprise, like... Um, you're setting yourself up for a world of hurt. You're going to hurt the people around you and you're going to hurt yourself. On that note, uh, I want to welcome today our guest, Slate Culture editor, Dan Coyce. Uh He is the co-host of our fellow podcast, Mom and Dad are Fighting, and he too is going to die someday. Dan,
1: welcome to the show. I'm not afraid to die. Aren't you I'll give I'm, advice on this podcast? I'm
0: very from afraid from the perspective die.
1: of someone who doesn't give a shit about dying.
0: So if you died tomorrow, you'd be like you'd welcome it, you would you'd open your arms and just embrace the sweet kiss of death.
1: I would I do it every day, man as an editor. <laughs> I ride the dizzy edge of life and death.
0: Dan, of, I can't help but feel that you are currently being disingenuous.
1: Uh maybe a little.
0: All right. All right, but this is great yeah. cuz you know what? We want fighting on this show so you're not afraid to die and i am afraid to die and with that in mind you and i are going to advise the people
1: so please view our advice through those two lenses
0: yeah if you don't don't mind dying if you are afraid and you want to live honestly and engage with that fear listen to me
1: yeah
0: great all right well uh let's get started i'm gonna go ahead and read our first letter uh which is just titled what's wrong with me dear prudence i keep making terrible decisions and can't seem to stop Last year, I left my home, my family, my friends, a 20 year secure, if uninspired career, to move 2,000 miles away to be with my first love. I'm 50, and I was his first love as well. He's married, and his wife invited me to their home. We decided to share him, although his wife and I were not interested in one another like that. My job here fell through. My dog died. The romance flopped spectacularly. I still love him desperately. And when he told me that it was over and that he didn't love me and never had, I begged him to reconsider, only to have his wife come in and start screaming at me to keep my fucking hands off her fucking husband. I snapped. I tried to kill myself. I ended up in a coma and then went to the psych ward. I've been out for only a week. I'm back at work. I'm freshly diagnosed as bipolar 1. I'm on new meds that I don't think are helping. Of course, I had to move out and I'm living a very lonely life. I do not feel stable and I cry for hours every night. The loneliness is killing me. I have psychiatric follow-up and intend to do what I can to survive and thrive. My former boyfriend is now making noises about wanting to be friends with benefits with me once I am quote-unquote well again, which sounds more like he wants a self-supporting mistress that he can come and have sex with and then leave at will. I still love him, but I realize this is a gross affront to my worth as a human being. I just don't trust myself to say no. Counseling may help, but I still don't trust myself to make good, healthy decisions. Everything I do blows up in my face. Any advice?
1: Uh, I'll begin. Please Mallory, do. By, by responding to this letter writer uh, as I responded to you when you first sent me this letter. Holy shit, dude. Uh, there's a lot going on in this letter. First of all, to this letter writer, I'm very sorry that all these things have happened to you. I'm very sorry. Uh, about how bad you feel about your decisions, and I'm sorry you feel you can't trust yourself to make good ones. I think the fact that you are writing and recognize many of the problems that you are facing um is a positive sign. and I think that the fact that you are seeing a counselor, that you have psychiatric follow up, that you're taking meds, whether that you may feel right now are not helping, but which I think in the long run, could really help to stabilize you alongside continued care and help. I think those are all good signs. Um, But I also think that you are right now faced with a a long-term question, which is what am I going to do with my life? And a short-term question, which is what do I do about this guy? The short-term question feels easier to me, Mallory, to answer than the long-term question. The answer to the short-term question is, you block his number on your phone and you never talk to him again, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah. I don't think this is going to be an issue that you and I fight over. Um, no. I I feel similarly in the sense that I'm kind of bowled over by this letter just in the sense that I, I feel like I want to let this letter writer know how proud I am of her. Like she has just been through the mill and people have treated her with kind of breathtaking cruelty. And I just I just want to give her a hug. I just I just wish very much that I could let her know that she is She does not deserve this and she deserves to be loved and not invited into some bonkers who's afraid of Virginia Woolf creepy psychosexual house of lies. Um, Yeah. uh, Yeah, I just I think this couple is is one of the top 10 worst couples I've ever heard of and I'm very mad at them. And uh, I I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think she should absolutely if she doesn't trust herself to be able to say no to him like reach out and ask for help. I, I, I don't know how she left her uh, family and friends when she moved away. I don't know if it was the sort of thing where they were upset by her decision and things were sort of fraught. But I hope very much that if they knew in what kind of trouble she was in, they would want to be there for her. So I, I mean, like, call your family if you can call your friends, call your old coworkers. like let them know you need help not talking to him. Maybe you have a family member who could come out and be with you. like ask for help. Kind of demand it, honestly. Like, let people know, here's how bad it is. I kind of want to die. I tried to kill myself. I don't feel like things are going to get better for a long time, and I'm afraid that I can't make good decisions right now. Like, ask for support, right? Like, get get people to take your phone and hold it and watch stupid TV with you, right? Like, get get a support network. Yeah, well,
1: one, one thing that's left unsaid, as you note, is that we don't have a sense of how open the option of returning is.
0: Right. Yeah. Cause writer. of course we that don't
1: was... know if, right. We don't know if she can go back. My hunch is the year is that the your the letter writer's family may not be open to her at this time. Hmm. But, um, but I do think that the letter writer's friends could be, and probably are. Right. And that is a support network that if you feel you have any connection to you should reach out to yeah and perhaps return to where they are or at the very least make full use of them and as mallory says right. demand their help they are your friends and they will be happy to do it
0: right because on the one hand i don't want to encourage a move right now given that this this letter writer is a week out of uh, an institution um and it's just starting on meds like i don't i i think like in just terms of the next couple of weeks and maybe even months um, I, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying, but just move, go home, find a new doctor. Like, you should stay with the people who are treating you currently if you feel like they're doing a good job treating you. But when it comes to your friends, like, don't downplay this. Don't say I'm having kind of a hard time. Say, like, I nearly died. If there's anyone who can come out and see me right now, now would be a wonderful time and I would very much appreciate it. I know not everyone can drop everything and go 2,000 miles away to be with a friend. But if there's a chance you have a friend who can take the time off work, even for a weekend, like. Ask. And and if they yeah. can't do that, at least say, can you Skype me on a daily basis for the next week? Like, can you call me? Can can I have some sort of verbal contact with someone? Um,
1: right. And you may view this as like a, a dire imposition and you can't believe you're making your friends do something something like this, but your friends want to do this for you if right. they only knew how how difficult your circumstances were, they would be on their hands and knees begging to help you. So give them that opportunity.
0: And I I think too, one thing I want to stress here is I think this letter writer is being really hard on, on herself. I think that, um, obviously there were things that she's done that she regrets i don't think she is a person who constantly makes terrible decisions like first of all i don't think it's necessarily like in and of itself a bad idea to move for a relationship and i don't think it's a bad idea to get involved with a couple like in a vacuum i don't think that's a bad idea um right. uh, maybe she could have done more due diligence maybe she went into this naively but like you're, you know, you had a 20-year secure career. You had family and friends. It's not as if every year on a whim you move across the globe um, to be with someone really untrustworthy. So I think to put it in perspective, like you trusted the wrong people at the wrong time. You're not a person who can't make good decisions, and I think that's a really important distinction to make.
1: Right, and this goes to the broader question of well what now on a long term basis for Mm -hmm. you and that has a lot to do with the way you view yourself and the way you view this episode of your life like there is a glass half full version of this story which you are certainly is very difficult for you to see right now Mm -hmm. but you are 50 and at a time when people often uh, get a wild hair you got a wild hair and you went on a wild adventure Mm -hmm. and it turned out really bad but People do that all the time, yep. and it does not necessarily have to be like a mark of failure or shame you carry with you all your life. It is a crazy thing you tried, and now if you want to go to some more stable, secure version of your life, mm-hmm. you can do that. You yep. can make that choice now. It doesn't. You don't have to forever be a person who makes really bad decisions, and the evidence of that is a big decision you made that didn't work out.
0: Right, and I want to really stress, you know who makes terrible decisions? Your ex-boyfriend and his wife, they invited you to come live with them. And then, you know, regardless of I, I don't believe that there's something you could have done to merit this kind of behavior, regardless of whether or not they realized this relationship wasn't working out the way that they broke up with you was monstrous. There are
1: a million more kind ways to do that than the way that they did that.
0: Yeah, it was just outrageous. Like, that's a terrible decision. And then to come to someone who's recently tried to end their own life and say, hey, by the way, when you're feeling better, I'd sure like to fuck. Like, that is a horrible abdication of your moral obligations as a human being. This guy makes terrible decisions. Like... Put yourself in a separate category from terrible decisions. That's a bad decision. That's the wrong way to respond to suffering, is to ask, when can I stick my dick in it? Um, I'm, I'm mad at him and he is a bad person. Uh, so I feel like... I'm so proud of you for recognizing you say this is a gross affront to my worth as a human being. Yes, you have accurately categorized this moral choice he has made. You are not overreacting. You are right. Write it down if you have to. What he is asking is for you to compromise who you are and your self-worth. And that's fucking terrible. So good for you. Um, and I say, like, be this upfront with your doctors. Tell them how bad it is. Tell them how lonely you are. Tell them you're afraid the medication's not going to work. Call your friends. Call your family. Tell them how bad it is. And just be honest as shit. Like, just say, I feel awful. And 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 let people help you because I think if you give most people the opportunity, if you are vulnerable and honest about what you need, they will not respond to you by saying, Get your fucking hands off my husband, get out of the house, when can I fuck you again? Most people in your life will say, I'm so sorry, how can I help you? And so I hope very much that you trust the other people in your life with helping you um, and can ask for that help because I do think more of them than otherwise will step up and do what they can to show you that you're loved. To show you that your life has value and meaning, uh, to show you that it is okay to fall apart, uh, and that you deserve help. And fuck that guy.
1: Yeah, seriously, that guy. That guy can eat a bag of dicks. He's All right, just, let's move on yeah. to question number All right,
0: two. Sorry, I'm getting really heated here, and I just. uh I'm going to take a break for a moment to remind you all that the complete Dear Prudence podcast experience is exclusive to Slate Plus members. Members get much more of this show, more questions, more answers, more talking, more advice, with no ads or interruptions. They also get more of the Dear Prudence column on Slate.com. And that's not all Slate Plus members get longer ad-free versions of other Slate podcasts, too. They get access to the ambitious Slate Academy series, like The History of American Slavery, and a year of great books. They're first in line for tickets to Slate events like live podcast tapings, and they get 30% off tickets. That's not even all. They're tall, strong, and never have cavities. And the whole thing is just $5 a month or $50 for a year. Try it free for two weeks. Go to slate.com slash to sign up.
1: Uh, all right, question number two. Mm-hmm. The subject is, I was the love of his life, question mark, exclamation point, question mark. I'm in my late 40s. Recently, a friend sent me a link to an obituary of somebody I briefly dated in high school. To my shock, I was listed as, quote, his high school sweetheart and the love of his life with other survivors like his mother, children, siblings, and other relatives. I dated this man for about two months in my junior year of high school. We broke up when he graduated and went off to college. It was a nice little romance, but nothing earth-shattering. Honestly, I cannot remember that he or I seemed too upset when we broke up. No wives or ex-wives are listed in the obituary, but he did have three children, so he had to have had other women in his life who were more important than me. The fact that he had children shows that they were intimate, which was more than we were. My husband saw the obituary, and he was more than a little confused by it and upset as well. I'd never mentioned this boyfriend because he just wasn't important in the scheme of things. I'm not saying my husband thinks I'm lying, but I do think he believes I'm hiding something from him. I'm at a loss what to do. I kind of want to ask his survivors how and why I got listed in the obituary, but I don't know any of them, so I don't know how I'd approach them with such an odd question, and I really don't know what to tell my husband, other than, I don't know what this guy was thinking. Any help?
0: I just want to say that while you were reading this letter, all I could think of was uh, George Jones. He stopped loving her today and those big shuddering yeah, violins yeah. in the background. And um, it's, it's a lot less romantic in real life than it is in a song.
1: So you so if you're in this woman's position,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, yeah, Dan, you think she uh, should you... call the
0: survivors say, hey, was your dad in love with me?
1: No, like, what good will that do?
0: Yeah, that I, I, do I also do not think that you should call grieving children uh, and ask them whether their dad talked about you. I think that that would be, uh, at best, unnecessary, and at worst, would be an unkind thing to do to grieving children.
1: You could demand a correction from the newspaper. Oh my
0: god, Dan. <laughs> I mean, yes. I, I no, I'm trying to think about that like, would also be cruel. I'm trying to think of if there's anything externally that she could do other than just accept there's going to be some degree of mystery and that he clearly saw the relationship differently than she did. It would be less inappropriate to call the newspaper and say, "Hey, who writes your obituaries? I have a question. you remember writing this one? Who told you to say I was the love of his life? because um, i I I could sort of see this happening. We're just like a bored obituary writer. Uh, You know, is given like a bullet list of facts about somebody and says, well, it mentions an old girlfriend, but but no wives or ex-wives. I'll, I'll throw in a little rhetorical flourish and kind of forgot about that's, it. And then later, this like sort of opens up a rift in someone else's life.
1: That's an interesting idea in theory, but in practice, almost certainly no journalists wrote this obituary. If it's like the vast majority of death notices in America, Mm -hmm. it was written by the family or by the subject before he died and then just submitted to the newspaper. Like you don't get your obituary written by an obituary writer unless you're famous.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. All right. Well, then there goes my theory.
1: So in lieu of being able to call a newspaper or or a, a relative, I think the answer to how did this happen is you'll never know and you should do your best to just not worry about it. Know that you made an impact on someone's life, uh, and be satisfied with knowing that you are the kind of woman that someone can't stop thinking about forty years later.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can um, sure understand why that would sit oddly with her. Uh I, sure. I'd have a hard time dealing with that ambiguity because, again, here it is: nobody likes ambiguity. Everyone wants answers. You wish he was alive so you could ask him about it, but he's not. He's dead.
1: I mean, you wish she was alive in the sense that it's better when people are alive than. They were dead, but knowing this, it would be deeply uncomfortable to have that conversation with him. Better that he took his secret to the grave, I say.
0: All right, that's, that's one point. Via an that's, that's one vote for taking your secrets to the grave from Dan. <laughs> uh, I. Uh, All
1: right, but so here's so here's the greater question: mm-hmm. What do you do about your husband? Yeah, because um, I mean, why?
0: Your husband should take your word for this,
1: right? He I think know you just got to be. My hunch is that he does. My hunch is that if you just sit down with him. I mean, unless there's a long history of like malfeasance in your marriage, which is possible. But in general, most husbands in this situation, if you're like, I don't know, man, he he, he, it's weird. I, I seriously don't know why he put this in his obituary. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Most husbands will be like, all right. And even if it turned out that you had some kind of deeper relationship with this guy decades ago, who cares? That was before you were married to your husband. And if he has a problem with it, he can like go to hell.
0: Wow. Well, uh, one vote for going to hell, because you're curious Uh why someone's listing your wife in their obituary. Uh, Dan, I'm not going to go that far with you. I say he can go to the kitchen table and have a nice conversation with her about this. Um,
1: Well, that would be the first step.
0: Yeah, that would be the step number one. Yeah. I mean, I definitely understand, like, if I was dating someone and this showed up in their life, I would have a lot of questions. But you have to ultimately accept it would not be appropriate to contact his family. You hadn't talked in decades. We all I think many of us have at least one or two exes that we probably think of more fondly than they think of us uh, or vice versa. So
1: we would never put that in our fucking obituary. But yes, that's definitely like a normal thing to feel.
0: I also could totally see myself if I were like dying young, like in my 40s and was just Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to go for broke. You know what I mean? Like, this is really unfair. I want to have something big and splashy. Like, I could totally see myself saying, when you write my obituary, here are the three people I want you to list that I'm just really mad at. And I took my anger to the grave and I never forgave them. And here's two people I long for and I want them to feel terrible when I die. Like I could totally see myself pulling shit like that.
1: And here's the four square mile coordinates where I buried a treasure.
0: Yeah, I don't want anyone to feel peace when I go. I want want it to send a ripple effect out into the universe of just confusion and longing. Where did she go? Why can't we follow? Um,
1: So letter writer, don't give in to this dead ex-boyfriend's Baloney! Don't let him get away with it. Just put it aside.
0: You're so mad at him.
1: I'm so, I mean, it's like a it's like a dick move. It's a dick move from beyond the grave.
0: But he was sad. He never he never uh. married. He 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 could never get over. He should have called, right? If it was that bad, he should have called her 15 years ago and said, "I can't stop thinking about you. Do you want to go out again?" Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Instead of just. Fathering children with other women, yet always wishing it was her.
0: All right. All right. I think we have answered this question about as thoroughly as we're going to. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, take it.
1: Take the next one, George Jones.
0: I, I will. I will. Uh, Dear Prudence, recently my mother decided to get her financials and her will in order in the event of her eventual death. She's healthy now, but thinks it's important to start thinking about things ahead. I brought up some long term care insurance and suggested that we look into it. And if it seems right, I would help pay for it. She brought this up to my aunt, who was appalled, and told my sisters and I that we are horrible people if we are not prepared to care for our mother ourselves until she dies. I'd love to be able to care for my mother at the end of her life, the way that she did for my grandmother, but I don't know that I can commit to that. When my grandmother was in her final years, my sister and I were all out of the house. My mom is one of six children, and the responsibilities were split. My mother had my two sisters and I late in life, so when she enters her 70s, my sisters and I will just be starting families of her own. None of my sisters, nor myself, or our spouses make a lot of money, so the probability that any of us would be able to take off months of work to provide care is unrealistic. We all live in the city, so we barely have enough space to house children, and my mother can't be guaranteed space. I would move home in a heartbeat to raise a family and be close to her, but it's an extremely rural area. It's very poor. I don't think I could find work within 60 miles. I'll work my hardest to make sure my mother is nothing but comfortable, but I also want to be practical, which means preparing for long-term care if it's needed. Is that wrong of me to honestly admit I might not be able to be her caregiver?
1: No, no, it is not wrong. No, 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 right? no, no.
0: My, so uh, my big question here, because I think you and I are both going to be in total agreement that no, what you're suggesting is very loving and, and completely understandable. My question is, did your mother tell your aunt because she herself was insulted or hurt by your suggestion but wasn't right. willing to fight with you directly. So she's trying to triangulate or does your mom think this is a perfectly good idea and your aunt is just sticking her nose somewhere. She doesn't belong. Cause those are two really different situations. What do you think?
1: Uh, it's see. what, well, I mean, I feel like if the mother had evinced any hesitation on this question, the letter writer would have included it given how like, extremely guilt-ridden this letter writer is about right. her extremely innocuous suggestion right no she's clearly given a
0: ton of to so like okay i guess i could move home but right. i really don't think i'd be able to work so then we probably have to you know figure that out and like this person's really put thought into it it's not just like oh i don't feel like it
1: right so there's no hint in here that when she told her mom this when he or she told her mom this that uh that the mom was upset in any way. So I kind of think it's just an ant like going off the rails mm-hmm. and like getting angry. And so, but I guess let's address both possibilities. So if it's just that your mom's sister like yelled at you, mm-hmm. but your mom is fine with the idea. Well, tough shit for your mom's sister. Your mom's sister is not your mom. If you have to choose between one of them being angry at you and the other, choose your mom's sister and do the right thing which is getting long-term care insurance. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's simple. If if it really is that you suspect that your mother is very upset about this, then that's worth sitting down and having a conversation with her in which you lay out essentially what you've laid out for us in this letter, Mm -hmm. how deeply you care for her and how much you would want to be able to be the one that takes care of her and you hope that life circumstances will allow such a thing to happen. But to bank on that, to basically make a bet, That that will be the case Mm -hmm. is a foolish thing to do. And that the best way to respect your mother's future life and the relationship that you guys have is to prepare for uncertainty and to prepare for the possibility that you will not be able to do what you wish you could do for your mother, but you want to make sure that your mother has a happy and Uh, loving place to be in her final years.
0: I think part of what's such a shame about the aunt's response is it seems like they're doing everything right. Like, when so many people want to avoid difficult conversations about money and end-of-care issues and, you know, the parent-child relationship, they're talking about it well in advance. She's perfectly healthy. They're making plans. They're thinking about buying insurance so that they won't be, you know, saddled with overwhelming medical debt in case she develops some, like, chronic illness that's really difficult for them to take care of. And then there's this added element now of because we're doing all the right things and thinking about the future before it happens – now someone's trying to make me feel like I'm a bad person. And clearly, this is clearly a, a person who's going to visit their mother no matter what, right? Like, this is not someone right. who says, my only two options are caring for my mother around the clock in my home or putting her in some sort of institution and just forgetting about her and letting her die alone. Um,
1: right. Like, there's a, Sending her to the home for aged bears.
0: Totally. Over the hill to Paris. the poor house. No, I mean, there's a right. wide spectrum of, of of possibilities in between those two extremes. And, yeah, I think... You're doing everything right. Your aunt, someone. Oh, your aunt's Casey, being a jerk. Yeah, your aunt's being yeah. a jerk. And and I'm sure uh, if you just check in with your mom and make sure that your mom's okay with this, you can just say, look, my mom's comfortable with this. I'm comfortable with this. And it's not your business.
1: Yeah. And don't, uh, don't and let her make you feel like a bad person. All listeners get long-term care insurance. Like, yeah. just go do it. Go yeah. do it right now.
0: Yeah. yeah. And don't tell your nieces and nephews that they're terrible people. I guess unless they really are. Dan, I think that this should be the final note that we close upon today. Uh, for real. Thank you so much for coming on the show uh, and and for giving so much wisdom uh, from someone who's not afraid to die.
1: My pleasure. And I'm off to uh, drive home at 97 miles per hour.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Don't put on a seatbelt.
1: No, pff, no way those are, I, I,
0: we're joking those are for everyone uh, please don't call us with angry messages about how people should wear seatbelts Dan's gonna wear a seatbelt I originally had decided against doing this or having this conversation because I feel like I've talked about it extensively. Uh, It's sort of become a part of the public conversation about this movie. But since the theme of so many of today's letters were people are making me feel guilty when they are doing something wrong. uh, I feel like it's really time to remind everyone that the, the moral of The Devil Wears Prada is apparently if your friend gets a job and works hard, you should make her feel like a piece of shit about it. And that makes me furious. Every time I think about that movie, I just want to reach into the screen and, like, grab Anne Hathaway by the back of her blazer and just have her say, you know what? Uh, None of you were complaining about how great this job was when I was getting you free Prada purses. And frankly, being a couple of hours late to an adult man's birthday party is only a crime in the movies. Like, you're a grown-ass man. He is a chef. He works in the food industry. You think he ever gets home before three in the morning? Are you kidding me? He doesn't understand that for one year she has a demanding job that will essentially open every path for her in journalism that's left remaining to journalists. Like, come on, man. Suck it up. And her friends are all, ooh, I don't understand you anymore. You suddenly care about the field you're working in when you didn't used to see value in it. As if that somehow makes her a bad person. Yeah, she understands garments now better. That's good. That means she's learning her job. I hope she buys the tallest skyscraper in the world. And that all of you hurt your necks looking up at her. You don't deserve her. Every one of Andy's friends and and relationships outside of Meryl Streep was bad to her and she should have stayed. They should have gotten matching helicopters and then created a sequel to Fifty Shades of Grey where Meryl Streep was was the, the sexual hitting person. And I'm not good at describing BDSM relationships. Uh, so I'll, I'll go ahead and stop there. But if you rewatch that movie, um, please yell at her unsupportive, mooching friends and lovers for me um, because I will never, ever, ever get over it. Thank you for listening to Dear Prudence, even though you didn't have to. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed, I'm told, by Robin Hilton. Steve Liktai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. And remember, you can hear longer, extra special bonus episodes of Dear Prudence by joining Slate+. Plus. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. Reviews make you feel good about yourself, clear your skin, And help new listeners find the podcast. Plus, we'd love to know what you think. Just search for Slate Dear Prudence. If you want us to answer your question, call and leave a message on 401-371-3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't even have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Please keep it short. Time is fleeting and we're going to die. 30 seconds or a minute and send it to me at prudencepodcast at gmail.com. That's prudencepodcast, all one word. At gmail